2019, we have made becoming an adult a really terrifying experience. It's not attractive in any way, as you think that the there's just no point. My daughter has actually said that. What's the point? It makes it even more important that the adults in their lives are modeling the human experience, you know, and making it more attractive. I think that's really important to engage in a full, rich life and model what that looks like for our children. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm excited to welcome a woman who goes by Stoic Mom. She's a mother of two, a certified life coach with a background in education. She's a writer and podcaster at the Stoic Mom Project, where she uses her daughter's trans identification as inspiration to become a better human, offering both free and paid content at stoicmom.substack.com. Many of you are probably familiar with her work through her writing, podcasting, Twitter presence, or perhaps her recent interview that came out on Gender A Wider Lens podcast. Today, I'm excited to dive into the topic of the mental well-being of parents who are worried about their trans-identified children. Stoic Mom, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me on your podcast, Stephanie. I, I just want to get this message out to parents that they can have a different experience than the, the fear and anger that I think so many non-affirming parents are, are experiencing. Absolutely. I think it's very timely and important, the work you're doing. It's not surprising to me to hear that your practice is often full uh, because I see how much struggle and crisis these parents are in. Um, I'm curious, why did you choose fear and anger? Are those the primary emotions that you're seeing? What, what do you typically notice with the parents who come to you? I would say, yes, fear and anger are um, at the top of the list. And I I recognize it because I spent quite a bit of time there myself. As you mentioned, you know, I have two kids. My oldest is 18 and is trans identified and has been for a number of years. And so I recognize, you know, the the fear and anger that I think is is a result of destabilization. To me, that is the word that captures this experience for parents better than anything else. It's incredibly destabilizing and really does a number on parents' confidence. And then that, of course, you know, puts them in a place of operating out of fear. And I think when you are fear-driven, especially if you are parenting out of fear, that's, that, that takes you nowhere good, right? That just tends to do damage. And so it just pushes that kid further away and makes it harder to maintain relationship and to parent them. You know, it just becomes really difficult to parent them if you're in that state. Absolutely. It can be so scary when a parent hears that their child identifies as trans because 
well, I'm sure each parent's experience is different and they're coming with a different knowledge base when they first receive the news. But as you and I and many listeners of this show are well aware, identifying as trans is very different from your child, say, coming out as gay or lesbian. Identifying as trans means that they're very likely to be considering making permanent physical changes to their body uh, with these novel experimental medical procedures that can cause all kinds of uh, problems, infertility, chronic pain, disability, heart disease, obesity, early onset Alzheimer's and dementia. I mean, the list goes on of the physical risks that you start to worry about might, might happen to your child if they get swept away in this stuff. Even for the parents whose child is just, you know, not talking about medicalization, if you know the online culture that they're immersed in, you worry that it's going to head there someday. So of course, parents go into panic mode because you're living in fear that your worst nightmare might come true. When you first chose to have children, if you have children who are teenagers or young adults, you probably knew that you were going to get into some hard times when they were teenagers. You anticipated having to talk to them about drugs, alcohol, sex, gangs, maybe, but you never anticipated that this would be the particular dilemma that your children are involved in and that you'd be living in a society where all the adults around you don't share your child's best interest at heart in the same way it feels the world is against you. So it can be a really crazy making time. And what I've observed is that parents go into this kind of panic mode where everything becomes very urgent. And so we have to assess the risk. You know, I've talked with parents sometimes about what, you know, okay, so what did your daughter say she was going to do, you know, and asking detailed questions to try to assess how imminent is the threat of medicalization that could have permanent consequences. For a lot of parents, maybe the threat isn't that imminent. The child is expressing some ambivalence. And, and so then it's like, okay, we're triaging, we're assessing the level of threat. And if this is not an immediate life and death situation, how do we help you get grounded? Because that fear will consume you, right? And if that fear is telling you that there's a real and present danger, then definitely act on it, you know, work with that adrenaline. But otherwise, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Well said. You used some of the very same words that I use in my practice. You know, first off, crazy making. It is indeed crazy making because these parents seek help from professionals out in the community and find that they are encouraged to get their child on this pathway, right? That eventually leads to medicalization. Um, and I agree with you. They, they go into panic mode. I went into panic mode. Right. Um, and they tend to escalate, I think, the situation. And so it's so important when they do come across, you know, a, a professional like yourself to, to do that triage, right? To do that assessment and figure out just how much risk is this child at. Another thing that I do with my clients is I normalize this as much as possible because what the kids are doing is normal, what the professionals are doing not normal, right? What the professionals are recommending and then how the professionals are responding, not normal. But we're talking about adolescents going through identity exploration, which is a very normal, healthy process. You know, it's just the response that we're getting out in the community that makes it precarious and dangerous, you know, and, and the parents can see that, right? The parents can see down the road and the, the, um, 
all the pathways that this child is closing off for themselves if they pursue that medicalization where the teenager is not, you know, they're not thinking about that. They're just thinking about belonging. They're just thinking about, um, they think what they're doing is compassionate, right? Like this is, this is the culture that they're in right now. They're just, they're just absorbing the culture, which is what, which is what they're designed to do. That's what humans do. We, we absorb the culture, whatever that is. And this happens to be the culture of the day. Right. I think that's such an important point that you just made that really as novel of a situation as this seems to be in many ways that in some ways it's the same old thing adolescents have always been doing. It's just the latest cultural iteration of it. What's really changed is the the adult in our response to that. And that's what makes it crazy making compared to a generation ago, if your teenager had some uh, silly ideas that you knew were, were risky and harmful, at least you could talk to their friends' parents and mm-hmm. agree that you're both going to try to, you know, not give them access to alcohol or talk to them about sex or whatever it is, right? So it's the culture that's shifted. And, you know, as you bring that up, I'm reminded of something I saw on Twitter that was one of those one of those moments where you see something and the response is very polarized and it's almost like a Rorschach test, right? Because it's it, there's there's multiple ways of looking at the same situation. And I'm actually really interested in what your take was. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a, a story, and I don't even know if it's true. It was just somebody's screenshot of a story that a dad ostensibly shared in some forum in which he said that he instantly piqued his daughter. And the way he claims to have done it was that his daughter said, Dad, I'm trans. And he said, I am too. And (laughs) did you see that one? (laughs) No, but I've thought about doing it. (laughs) So like the next day he, and I'm sure I'm butchering the story, but he like drives her to school wearing his wife's clothing. (laughs) And and she's so mortified that she drops the issue. Mm. And, you know, you and I are laughing. um, And I'm curious when you say that you've had that thought about um, what that means. But the response to this was polarizing because Mm. some people uh, on the gender critical side were saying, this is a terrible idea. It's making fun of your kids. It's building a wall. Mm. It's dismissing or minimizing or this or that. And, you know, my first reaction, honestly, was, good for him. You know, (laughs) if this is a true story. And Mm. and that's because it's so... uh, that story draws a wonderful parallel with how creative people uh, navigated their teenagers' issues 20 years ago. You know, if Mm, you just mm -hmm. embarrass them and make the risky behavior uncool or you identify with it, suddenly they don't want to do it anymore. And it just goes to show how fickle the whole adolescent craze is, right? If now Mm -hmm. your dad's doing it, ew, it's uncool. It's so last year. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my initial read on it is if this is true, this dad, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt. He knows his daughter, right? Right. This isn't advice that you would just give to any and all parents because it it has to do with however many years, let's say 14 years of a father-daughter relationship and his sense of humor and their bond and what he knows about the social factors at play there. Um, so I was curious. I mean, obviously, I've already just kind of given away how it landed to me. I didn't put it very neutrally to you. But how does that story land with you? And I'm curious when you said that 
you've thought about doing the same thing, if you want to elaborate on that. Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of things. I want to um, highlight what you said about he knows his daughter, which is something parents need to hang on to that can help them feel more grounded. Nobody knows your kid better than you do, right? That's, that's just part of parenting. And so take confidence you know, in that that you know your child best and you need to be in charge of your kid's treatment plan, if you will. Like, that's what I would certainly recommend. Um, and then also just the way that we engage in this, in this, not even just this in particular, but with our, our adolescents who are trying to individuate, right? I know it kind of messes with my kids. She knows that I do this work. She can't stand that I have made this my thing. You know what I mean? She knows that I'm not trying to coach parents to get their kids to desist. I'm very clear about that when I'm taking on clients and, and that that's not the work that I'm doing, that I'm doing life coaching. And this is just a situation that highlights for parents that they have some work to do. Um, but it still eats at her that we both have the same thing. You know what I mean? Because she's trying to be different from me. And so mm-hmm. I know it, it It just, I think it messes with her head a little bit now that this has become my livelihood, you know? So. Yeah. What a mirror. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, such a mirror. That's such a big part of this for parents is recognizing the mirror. Seeing that, that this, you, that this is an invitation. This is, this is the message I I put out on Stoic Mom is you can try to control your child's um, path in life, right? It's, it's probably not going to go very well because I do see this very much as an individuation strategy. And so recognizing this as an invitation to do your own work. You can't control your kid's work. You can control your own work. And I feel like it's, it's a beautiful invitation to get clarity on your values, you know, to tune into your inner wisdom, to examine your relationships and learn where they could be healthier, what you can change about yourself to show up in a healthier way in all of your relationships, including the relationship with your child. And that's what I mean when I say inspiration to become a better human. You know, we can... I'm a big fan of the stoic principle of the obstacle is the way and recognizing what we have control over. We don't have control over external circumstances. We only have control over the way we respond to them. And so I just see this as an invitation to just get really good at, better at life and model resilience. Well, I think you just described uh, the mentality that is the optimal balance between the optimal balance in terms of how much responsibility to take, because, uh, you know, you could go either way, right? One way you go into, this is all my fault and self-scrutiny, self-blame, rumination. What did I do wrong? And I've seen parents who, you know, they really did their best by their child and could not ultimately control the cultural environment in which their child grew up, right? So on on one end, you have being too hard on yourself, right? On the other end, I I think it's valuable to recognize sometimes that 
this is about the culture. Um, but it's also tempting to blame the child. And like you say, remain in that place of fear and anger. And, um, so a question I often navigate as a therapist who works with these parents is how do I help them find the right amount of responsibility to take in this situation, locate that responsibility in themselves and find a way to approach it that is ultimately empowering, right? Not that just reinforces cycles of shame and guilt. And I've noticed that people who are more um, defended against shame, who have a lot of repressed shame, are some of the most difficult to work with around this because you can't kind of approach any responsibility that they might have had for, you know, how they could have done better by their child without triggering that defense. Um, so I like how you talk about this from a standpoint of agency and seeing it as an invitation because it's not blaming yourself. It is taking into account that this is really a cultural phenomenon and that, you know, people who did their best as parents can still find themselves worried, sick about their kids, but you do view it as an invitation. And I've seen that myself. And I want to kind of link that to the concept of the identified patient in family systems therapy, which is what I'm trained in as a licensed marriage and family therapist, that in, when we're trained to look at family systems, um, there's this idea of the identified patient. And the identified patient is, you know, sometimes we could call the, the scapegoat or the black sheep or the problem child, the one that the family brings saying, fix my kid or fix my husband or wife or whoever, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, yes, oftentimes that person is the one who's demonstrating obvious signs of emotional distress, behavioral problems, addiction. Um, but oftentimes they are the one who is manifesting the illness of the entire family system. And so our work in family systems therapy is to unlock the roles that people have rigidly gotten trapped in, right? That the identified patient who's maybe been stuck in this role for years of being the problem in the family you know, in what ways are they not a problem? In what ways are they resilient, independent, creative, gifted, you know? Um, and the people who are kind of busy pointing the finger or maybe trying to maintain the image of a perfect family, in what ways is there something that they're not dealing with here? So what I've observed as we've entered this era of the magical trans child is that the the trans child in the family is often what we used to call the identified patient. It's just the mental health system isn't treating that the same way we used to from a family systems lens of seeing, okay, what is this a symptom of in the family system or in the society at large? But what you describe is this approach that very much resonates with that philosophy because you're seeing there's a sign that something in the system is not well here. And right now that's manifesting as this child self-diagnosing and identifying this particular narrative for what the problem is and what the potential solution should be. But really that's just an invitation to see that, okay, something's wrong here. And you'll, you know, if you listen to the stories of B-transitioners, they'll say like Helena Kirshner had said, for instance, that, you know, I was a troubled teen and nobody was paying attention to me until I identified as trans. Once I did, then people recognized that I needed help and support. So I see that as an invitation and a call for help on the part of the child and an invitation for the whole system to come together and see what have we been repressing or ignoring or blaming others for, delaying dealing with. I love that idea of the identified patient. I I do often share that 
my family wasn't super healthy when my daughter, you know, started struggling. And, and the trans identity wasn't part of it for about another year, right? The struggle started about a, a year or two previous, you know, started es- escalating her challenges in school and stuff. And, and my marriage was pretty rocky. Um, and I've often thought about that, you know, that my, my daughter is very sensitive. I think we have raised a very sensitive generation, a very empathic generation, I do think that this is a way to defend, you know, I think they're defending a lot of vulnerability. There's, there's so many factors, right? This really was a perfect storm. Um, but I, I also think that it's just one more presentation of a variety of ways that adolescents are telling us things aren't going well. And I don't think it's just the family system, right? I also want to lift up that these are these are relatively healthy families much of the time. You know, no family is perfect and everyone has room for growth. So when I say an invitation, I mean we're we're humans. Humans are are resilient growth-oriented beings as long as that's the story that we own about ourselves. So we all have room for growth, right? We all have room to show up better. And and I find that very interesting. I don't I didn't know about that identified patient. Um model. So I find that really interesting because I do definitely see that commonality, I think, among many of these families that I work with. Um, and then you, when you talk about the family system, I often refer to the family unit and how important it is, I think, to communicate to the kid a couple of things. One, you got this, right? You're, you've got the capacity to do hard things and to figure things out, and I believe in you. And we've got this as a family unit. You know, we're going to figure things out because that's what we do. We figure things out. And when things get difficult, we work together on solutions and we'll get through this, you know. And, and if we could approach this in this way without that initial escalation, which, again, is so understandable because this is so destabilizing and and terrifying. It is terrifying for parents to imagine those outcomes. But if we can bring it back to the present moment, <laughs> this is where we are. You know, we need to be in today so we can respond to what's happening today um, and not get stuck in the past, like you said, beating ourselves up, which I do think there is value to that reflection, right? What things could I have done differently? How could I have inoculated my child? Or how could I interact with my child in a different way? to um, encourage a healthier outcome, right? Or at least to encourage a healthier relationship. What are you looking for? What are you paying attention to? You, you talked about the child that, that I need to fix, right? There's this, this identified patient, my child's broken, fix them. <laughs> um, rather than focusing on that child's capacity, to, you know, that, that human capacity to move through difficult things. And I think the more that we, we focus on that, like that became a big part of my MO is to, when I looked at my daughter, I was looking for her strengths, you know, and I was conveying that confidence in her that you, you'll, you'll move through this. You got this. I believe in you, you know, and that's, that's very much not the narrative that they're getting out in the world. You know, they're, they're being fragilized. 
you know, is, is how I see it. They are being told they're too, they're too fragile for this world and they need to be handled with care, which I think is another function of this identity. And we should jump into like a needs-based approach too, which is a big part of the way I navigate this and what I recommend for my clients. Um, is they're just, they're meeting needs with this, you know? Absolutely. And one of them is, is that signal to the world that I'm fragile, you know, <laughs> take extra care with me. <laughs> I can't handle normal human experiences, you know, so. We need attention. And I think it's unfortunate mm-hmm. that the phrase attention seeking is kind of our dominant way of talking about that. And that it has mm. such a negative connotation because mm-hmm. we do need each other's attention. Our, yes. our attention that we give each other is so valuable. And that starts most fundamentally in the parent-child relationship. And mm-hmm. in a world where most households require multiple incomes and everything's so busy, attention is such a precious commodity. Yes. And children will get attention one way or another. And hearing what you just described made me think about how, you know, if we don't know how to get attention in a positive way, getting negative attention is better than no attention at all. And you were sort of alluding to situations in which, you know, being in distress and crying out for help or creating drama, so to speak, is the way to get attention. You also talk about fragility and there's a broader dialogue about you know, how our society is fostering and promoting fragility right now. There's something really insightful that you said in your conversation with Sasha and Stella on Gender A Wider Lens. You were talking about how a lot of today's young people grow up feeling like the world is pretty gloomy. And as you were describing that, I was relating so much. In fact, I just relate so much to everyone caught up in this gender crisis And I know there's certain detransitioners who'll get mad at me for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I would have been one of them, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. I I, I just relate so much to the struggles that they faced during critical developmental periods and to the ideologies that were attractive and the reasons for that. And, you know, personally, I grew up just imagining that some kind of global catastrophe was right around the corner. And I think when I was growing up in the 90s, that was maybe not as common of an experience um, as it is today, where with today's youth and political polarization and climate change and all of these issues and, you know, so much unfettered access to information and social media all the time, I really do think that the experiences I had as a teenager with the unique interests that I had and experiences that I had are probably more common today, right? Growing up feeling like, what's the point? You know, climate change is destroying the world. Robots are taking our jobs. And what what to speak of the sex stuff, right? The fact that, let's say you're a heterosexual teenage girl. Well, the boys you would have had crushes on are all watching porn. And I've heard horror stories about, you know, boys on first dates trying to choke girls thinking that's what they wanted. I mean, mm. the the dating culture mm-hmm. itself is so grim. So there's all of these factors that make the world seem like a pretty gloomy place. And if you think about negative versus positive attention seeking in that, what what positive attention seeking route is there, especially when 
any sign of being successful is frowned upon or worse by your peers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It seems mm-hmm. like the only way to get positive attention in a lot of environments. I'm not saying like I'm not saying it's like this for all adolescents because you know individual circumstances may vary in their home or their community, um, their family and culture. But I do think that for a lot of adolescents, you know, there is a sense the world is a terrifying place. I don't know what ambition I could possibly have that would be worth pursuing that I would be capable of fulfilling. And, uh, I, I don't think I can face this on my own. So I'd rather be a patient. Yep. I'd rather be the special magical trans child that needs this special type of healthcare and needs everyone around me to pay the special type of attention to me and get to be in this victim category than be left alone to figure out a path for myself in this terrifying world. I think you really nailed it. I have been saying a similar thing, I think, to all of my clients recently. You know, somewhere along the line, we have made becoming an adult a really terrifying experience. It's not attractive in any way. As you said, these kids think that the there's just no point. My daughter has actually said that. What's the point? Right? And so I think that makes it even more important that the adults in their lives are modeling the human experience, you know, and making it more attractive. I think that's really important to engage in a full, rich life and model what that looks like for our children. Um, It's making me think of needs. Again, when you talk about positive attention, I would probably use the language of universal human needs. You know, everybody needs to be seen, heard, valued. You know, and we just don't have structures in place that do a very good job of that right now. You know, and I think that this identity is very much a way to hide from some of those things that you talked about. I absolutely see my daughter having used this as a way to opt out of this pornified culture that she lives in. It's a way to just not engage in any of that. You know, I don't, I don't think she sees the sort of fetishistic aspects of it. I think it was more just a way to not engage in that awkward adolescent, um, uh, you know, when they start discovering the opposite sex and people are looking at her body, this is just a way to hide, hide away from all of that and not be seen that way. I do think it's a way to extend childhood for a lot of these kids. I think it's, mm-hmm. You know, we've heard it called a, a, a weird Peter Pan syndrome, you know, and I, I definitely see that. I think, I know you've had Jesse Manisto on, and I've had her on my podcast a few times too, and we talk about the theory of positive disintegration. I think with some of these really sensitive kids, which again, I think that is a, an outcome of the type of parenting that my generation did, right? It was a very child-focused approach, which, you know, I think now we're seeing some of the negative outcomes of that, where we've, we've, we've created a generation of very inwardly focused, um, you know, young people, young adults, and they, they, they don't have this outward focus on the world. It's more this hyper-reflection on themselves. And I think a lot of that comes from the way that we parented. We didn't know any better. It seemed the thing to do, you know. It 
like always, I think parenting is a little bit of an experiment and we're just, we're, we're working with what we've got in the moment um, and trying to do better than our parents did. Right. I think that's really most parents MO is they're going to give their kids a different experience than what they had. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about that needs based approach and just if it's all right, like I, I think it is important to look at some of the cultural influences as to how we got here. You know, personally, I believe that all humans are born wired for curiosity and creativity and for a drive to, to contribute in meaningful ways. And I think the systems we have in place don't encourage those tendencies, right? I feel like we kind of condition people out of those. And so when they hit, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, and they are um, looking at the models around them and trying to find something that looks attractive and that they want to participate in, they're not finding much of that. You know, they're not experiencing a lot of meaning. And this, I think people are recognizing what we have in our hands is a new belief system, right? This is a new worldview. And so they adopt this worldview because it meets those needs for meaning and purpose and belonging, as well as, you know, that signal of, you know, I'm fragile. There's just so much to it. To me, it's, it, it, I see it as now a normal adolescent experience. Because of the culture we're in, it would almost be weird to not try this on. You know, it's just, it's where we are in space and time. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You said earlier that you think it's important for parents to model to their children that you can have a rich, fulfilling human life. 
And I immediately thought of how there's kind of this bitter sweet irony to the fact that a lot of parents aren't modeling that because they've devoted so much of their lives to trying to take care of their kids. Whether that means they're working hard to make money to pay for their kids or they are, you know, stay-at-home moms or dads who have um, been focusing all their energy on the kids. I don't know of too many families that have found this ideal balance that we would all ideally seek of, you know, work, family, play, meaning, purpose, health, joy, abundance, responsibility, all of that coexisting in optimal balance, I think is very elusive and hard to find. And sometimes when a family enters into a situation where now they have a trans-identified child, the last thing they want to do, I mean, now it really feels like they're in crisis mode. So it seems like the least intuitive time to take up horseback riding and get a massage, right? (laughs) (laughs) So how do you guide parents to back to finding themselves Mm -hmm. and cultivating joy and purpose, right? When it seems like that's the last thing they can afford. You know, this was a real aha moment for me. Um, After spending a couple of years really trying to uh, get my kid to desist, really. I mean, trying to talk her out of the identity, like, you know, logic was going to work. Because logic doesn't work when you're dealing with the unfalsifiable belief system. You know, this isn't about that. And I had to recognize that. But I was working with a coach at the time, a parent coach, who um, asked me about the modeling thing. You know, do you think you're showing up as the type of woman you would want your daughter to have as a model? I don't remember his exact words. He doesn't either. <laughs> Asked him recently, um, and and that's when it hit hit me. I think, and I had I had had some exposure to stoicism before that, but I think too when we're dealing with with kids this age, and th- this is the hardest thing, is to not. I want to encourage the de-escalation again to, to not, to reframe this as not a crisis, you know, to reframe this as a normal adolescent experience. I know that sounds crazy when we're talking about a trans identity, but I want to say what I said earlier, what your kid is doing is normal. And if we can keep the energy in the home more stable it doesn't have to be a crisis. And I think that that is going to, I can't guarantee it, but I suspect that the less of a crisis we make it, the less likely it is to become a full-blown crisis. You know, I think that, that our energy really matters. But you've got to assess where your life is, right? If you're going to have that full, rich life that we want to model for our kids. Are you, are you living that right now? And I think you're right. I think a lot of adults don't find themselves doing that. And I think maybe you start with that values assessment. You know, what, what is important to you? 
Are you living with meaning and purpose in your life? What are you modeling for your kid? Can you back off of their outcomes a little bit and focus on your own and trust that your kid does have the capacity? They, they can move through this. As I think that we, and, and this is another big ask for parents, and I know it, <laughs> we, we were so invested in the way that we parented. And the culture is such that parents are expected to be really attached to their children's outcomes. That they're looking for a certain, you know, there's, there's certain markers that their kid is going to be in the world in a successful way. And of course, I'm using air quotes there because is, is our, our cultural definition of success um, really what we want for our kids? <laughs> you know, I don't know that that really is a model of a full, rich life. I think the, the, the generation I was raised in, you know, the values maybe need to be looked at and assessed and parents need to determine whether they're really working for them and their family. And is it possible to maybe shift those a little bit in a way that supports um, the mental well-being of everybody in the household? Mm. Makes me think of how part of adolescence is, it's a struggle against, it's a struggle to push away going, not this, not that, right? In psychology, we call it the second reprochement. So reprochement, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. It's a French word, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a toddler stage of development that's about pushing and pulling. And then we go through that again in adolescence because we still need our parents, but we also need to individuate, which I know you talk about a lot. And so you bring up the question of you know, for example, for a mother of a daughter, am I modeling for my daughter a healthy way of being a woman in the world? Doesn't mean that she has to follow in my footsteps, but am I at least showing her that there are some decent options out there? Or for a father of a son, am I modeling healthy masculinity? Am I modeling an attractive path for a man? Um, and so in some ways, teenagers are kind of programmed to go, not this, not that, I'm anti this, I'm anti that in the struggle to eventually find out what they are for and who they really are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what are we giving them to push up against? And is, are they right to point out that maybe they don't have any healthy models of what it is to be a woman or a man or masculine or feminine? You know, I think for example, there are families struggling with this issue where the mom has been very self-sacrificing as a mother, but has low self-esteem and depression. And maybe she thought that the right thing to do was to put everyone's needs before her own. And that was her model of what it was to be a good wife and a good mother. But then a daughter goes, you know, the, the adolescent daughter goes, that's, that's disgusting and pathetic. Is that what it is to be a woman, to just be a slave mm -hmm. to your children? Right? And, and in a way, it's like a very feminist sentiment that gets co-opted by the trans movement, which is really anti-feminist in the end, right? But but then there's a valid concern there. Is the daughter seeing something uh, that that we've gotten wrong about the, the burden that mothers carry? Or, you know, I've seen too where there's the absence of a strong father figure mm -hmm. and a daughter seems to feel, and this is just an, an interpretation, it's not 
a fact because we can't get inside the daughter's head, but it seems like the daughter feels like there's a missing masculine role that she needs to step into Mm. because of that lack of a father figure, you know, Mm. or we could, we could explore at length too what, what the father figures are modeling um, that leave young men and women feeling like there's no option for them to grow into the man or the woman that they're going to eventually become that they can really walk in this world. And I see some very confusing messages on social media from detransitioners as well about like, I think I saw one today that was about someone who said they would, uh, a female who said she would rather transition to living as a male than marry a man and have his children. And I don't know Mm. the sexual orientation of the person who said this. I mean, obviously if you're a lesbian, then that makes more sense than if you're heterosexual. Um, But in any case, it's, you know, it's very confusing thinking about what is it if, if a young woman is feeling that she'd rather be a man than yeah. be with a man? What does that tell her about who men are to her and who women are to her? Because to me, it seems like male equals threat. And you'd rather be somebody who's capable of being a threat and chooses not to be a threat to others than put yourself in a position where you are exposed and vulnerable to threat. Mm-hmm. And I find it really sad that there's this idea that you can opt out of that threat, you know, that's, and I do feel like I see some of that in what my daughter is doing is just trying to opt out of that male gaze, right? That, um, yeah, that dynamic you know, um, and it is, it's heartbreaking. And I do think it, it is just, a, again, a symptom of our cultural values right now. You know, I really do see that it is time for the culture to go through a curriculum of the soul, right? I use that a lot when I talk about the work that these moms are doing. You know, this is, this is, deep, intense healing work that I'm, that I'm working with moms on, you know, and, and I think some of it is generational too, right? There's a lot of those patterns and complexes and things that get absorbed. You know, I'm always blown away by some of the things that come out of my daughter's mouth that I don't think I've even ever said out loud. I'm thinking, how did that get in from my head into your head, you know, and, and it is a mirrored experience that gives me a roadmap for my own work. You know, I, I watch what she's doing and I pay attention to the things that I think are, are creating unhealthy responses. And, and where is that reflecting, you know, how I'm showing up in the world? How can I show up differently to give her a model for something else? Right, that then becomes the roadmap is your kids' behaviors and what they're choosing and and how they're responding, you know, to the different situations that life is handing them to to deal with, you know. And I think that 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 can be helpful for direction. And I I, I come back to values often. I think that so few adults have done this. Um, 
value assessment of being super clear on what's important to them. What are their guiding principles in life? You know, what is your template? Because I think that's another need that this is filling. I think humans have always had some sort of template for life because, you know, we don't have the same instincts that other creatures do. And so we have storytelling and we have culture and we have religion. We have these ways to hand down, this is how you move through the world. And we've lost a lot of those, you know, and so our kids are just grasping for a template that is going to give them their roadmap, right? They just want a roadmap that feels exciting and meaningful and doable. And I think this offers them that, right? One of the many things that this trans identity is offering them, a need that it's filling. Yes, we can see down the road where this is headed and the pain that it can lead to. They don't see that part. They just see, they're just like, show me what to do, right? And so, yeah, I, I, I want to give her options, right? I can't, I can't take that roadmap away from her. It's too available to her. So I can't do that. What I can do is model being in the world in a healthy <laughs> way, you know, and live a life with meaning and purpose. And my values are very clear and, and um, give her another potential roadmap to choose. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. You said you have another child who is a, an ally who affirms your daughter's trans identity. And you said some really compassionate and insightful things about the position that your other child is in. And uh, that reminded me of some pa- conversations that I've had with parents where I try to help them see the world through their child's or their child's siblings, for example, 
perspective. I think some of the goals that parents have for their children around complete desistance are, while completely understandable because they don't want their child to be harmed, um, really do kind of lack that map for, okay, but how is your child supposed to exist in the social environment? Because they just, they can't stay in this bubble forever. They can't come and say, okay, mom and dad, you were right. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Of course, humans can't change sex. I love you. I'm sorry. I'll be okay. You know, okay, but then what then? Because they're not going to stay with you forever, nor should they. Your child is individuating. They have peers and academic environments, potentially workplace environments, other you know, situations and the online community to navigate. And they have to carve out an identity for themselves somehow and a way of navigating those social situations. And to be, you know, to come around to seeing it from your perspective or my perspective as let's say an 18 year old, that's, I mean, what, what are they to do? How are they to navigate? I mean, it's hard working with detransitioners, for instance, who are waiting for the world to change. And in the meanwhile, they feel like very limited in terms of their academic and occupational opportunities because everywhere they go, they're surrounded Mm -hmm. by reminders of gender ideology, which for them are actual PTSD triggers. Um, You know, imagine anywhere you go, you're constantly reminded of the worst thing that ever happened to you that you have physical daily reminders of. That's intolerable. And many detransitioners can't work or can't go to school because of it. So if that's a situation that, you know, detransitioners in their 20s, for example, find themselves in, I think that, you know, that should inspire um, some compassion for what it's like to be even younger than that as someone who maybe hasn't detransitioned, maybe somebody who either is just, you know, claiming to be non-binary or waving some kind of flag as a way of fitting in, not to say that they're necessarily identifying as trans. They're just trying to be a so-called ally or, you know, not be ridiculed as a, you know, boring, privileged, cishet, whatever. Like, what is the roadmap for these kids? And I think for many parents, you need to remember that your kid is trying to navigate their environment, right? And how are you going to help them? How are you going to respect their process of trying to do that in the world they're growing up in? Not the world you wish they lived in, not the world you came of age in, but the world they're in now. And sometimes when you see their behaviors in that light, you see, oh, this is all socially mediated. And actually, I don't think my kid really wants to do this deep down. And then you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. You're just like, oh, this is just what they're doing to fit in right now. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes at least it, you know, it opens up other ways of thinking about it. Yeah, I think we really need to recognize that our kids are straddling two worlds. You know, they've got their culture in the home, which a lot of parents going through this situation have found themselves shifting politically and philosophically away from, you know, the, the mainstream culture, which is social justice, justice oriented, right? Um and it does, I also want to acknowledge how difficult this makes it to parents because our kids are getting messages that we are bigoted, right? Hateful, transphobic. And so they've got this story in their heads that their parents are wrong about so many things. And it's funny, they're not even being rebellious. They think they're doing the right thing. They're in the right camp. It's their parents that are the rebels, It's their parents that are wrong. It's their parents that need to get in line. 
you know, so I have tremendous compassion because I am with you, right? I am parenting in a home where this is the case. Um, and again, like I'm coming back to that idea of worldviews and I use that terminology with my children a lot. You know, my daughter knows that I see this as a different worldview. You and I have different worldviews. That's okay. I trust that you are going to make the healthiest choices for yourself, you know, and, and, and I see that you are a compassionate person doing the best you can to move through the world. And she might choose this other belief system right now. She is choosing it. And so is my son. They don't realize they're choosing it. You know, they've just kind of absorbed it, which is unfortunate, right? I think most people, when they, um, you, you know, as they're individuating, they might join a religion or something, and they, it's very conscious. It's a conscious choice, right? This one is not a conscious choice. And so, unfortunately, it does tend to position parents and children against each other, which is, in, in my worldview, <laughs> harmful, right? I think children need their families and their parents were the ones who have their best interest in mind. That said, who knows what happens with this worldview? And I have no interest, and I, I might be a bit down a rabbit hole, but in, in engaging in the culture war and in um, deciding what's right and wrong, you know, I, I prefer to think of things as are they working or not working? Are they healthy or unhealthy? You know, and that we're going to have different opinions potentially on what those are, what that looks like. Um, I mean, I can just imagine there are parents listening to this right now who haven't gotten good sleep in a year mm-hmm. and are total stress cases. They've quit their job. Their marriage is crumbling, you know, and mm-hmm. and they're really envying your level of calmness as you talk about this. I want to I, I want to get some insights from you on coming to this place of radical acceptance that you seem to be where as much as you you want to protect your child just as much as the next person and you know how harmful this stuff is, mm-hmm. this ideology is, but at the same time, you can just state in such a calm and peaceful way that you understand that you ultimately cannot control the outcome. And a lot of what you do, like you are very clear, you're not coaching parents in how to get their children to desist because, well, for one thing, if there were a path to that, you would have used it yourself. And I say that, I say the same thing, you know, my work is riddled with disclaimers when I work with parents. I, first of all, I have to explain how I won't work with their kids because I have a public presence speaking about this issue and your kid's going to Google me and that's just not going to work. And I'm here to talk with you about your well-being and how this is impacting your family and your marriage and your sleep. And, um, you know, and hopefully, the identified patient being the parent coming to me for their own distress, if they're willing to engage in that process, hopefully I can help them on all fronts and they'll be a better version of themselves, a healthier version of themselves and, and have a closer relationship with their child where, you know, hopefully their child can see, wow, my mom really loves me. And maybe there's something to why she's trying to point out that this might be hazardous to my health. Yeah. Ultimately, hopefully that's great, but I certainly make no guarantees And there are people who do provide coaching, you know, Sasha Ayad provides parent coaching, Gabs Clark provides parent coaching, you provide parent coaching, and and some is more strategically oriented than others. 
but I get that your focus is really about the parents' well-being. And so how do you come to that place of, of being calm and collected and really just accepting what you cannot control in this situation? Yes, it's, some of it is, what choice did I have? You know, I could still be making myself crazy because my kid is still trans identified, but who is that serving? You know, it was a lot of work to get here, I want to point out. Um, And I want to also point out that I didn't just get worn down and give up. You know what I mean? I think that is a very different uh, pathway (laughs) and one that is is also unhealthy and is going to take a toll on you, you know, if you just give up out of learned helplessness, you know. Um, I chose to release my daughter to her journey. I am somebody who recognizes, and and through this work with my daughter, I want to also lift up, I'm in a very different place than I was when this landed in my house. Like I accepted the invitation to do the work. And I did the work and I'm still learning and growing because I'm human. That's that again, humans are learners. It's just, if we own that story about ourselves, we're going to be learning over the lifespan, (laughs) you know, and, and honestly, part of my story is, and people who have listened, I I think I mentioned this in the interview with Sasha and Stella. There were very difficult things going on in my life at the same time, you know, and tragedies in my uh, larger family. You know, there were, I had a brother who passed away in 2020 after spending a few years in a nursing home at the end of his, his journey with multiple sclerosis, you know, where he was quadriplegic. And the only way he could call for a nurse was with the little straw that came to his mouth, you know, and he was an amazing model of somebody who chose life. You know, he lived right up to the end. And I'm so grateful for that model, you know, and I'm grateful for the comparison of my healthy body that, you know, takes me through this life and allows me to experience the fullness and richness of it. You know, he, he didn't get that for the last few years of his life and still did his best to live to the fullest. I had, uh, um, my baby sister lost her husband to cancer and she had four little kids. Right. And so I was comparing my problem set to the problem sets in these other homes and people would ask me how I was doing. <laughs> this, is, this was in the dark times with my daughter, you know, shortly after the trans identity um, was made known to me. And I was, I had my foundations ripped out from under me, right? I, I, I lived the destabilization. I lived that. And when people would ask me how I was doing, it would drive me crazy because I'm just an authentic person and I can't just say I'm fine or things are fine. You know what I mean? And I, I started saying life is rich. That became my response. Life is rich. And I, I'm grateful also for a mother who I think probably did her own. She, I had a model. 
you know, and that's another reason I encourage this pathway is because I think it can break generational, um, uh, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Patterns, right? Generational patterns of like victimhood, you know, and, and I'm grateful for my model, which was my mother who, who has endured some really difficult things. She has lost two children. That's painful, you know? And, and yes, this is painful. And yes, this is destabilizing. And yes, this could be worse, you know? And, and how many years of my life am I going to give to this? I think it just comes down to being, being conscious of, of the stories you're telling yourself, you know? I think you can change the story. And, if, and you can change the story in a way that can improve your quality of life. If you live in the future, you're going to be an anxious mess. If you live in the past, you're going to be depressed. You know, we, we've got to stop time traveling and come into the moment and practice gratitude. I, I know that can sound so trite, but it truly is transformational. If you can wire your brain, this is neuroplasticity. You know, we, we change our storytelling style. And we have a different experience. And, and, and I, I want to, again, lift up, it was work. You know, <laughs> I spent a few years in that hellscape. I know the hellscape, right? And pain is motivating. And I knew I had a choice. I can continue like this, which is painful, and I'm trying to control somebody else. And that doesn't usually work out too well. You know, if, my, if I'm hanging my happiness on somebody else's experience, that's a recipe for failure, you know? So all I can control is myself. I'm going to put my focus there. And then, you know, I want to I also acknowledge that I know that this is a level of individuation because that's mom's work too, right? Mom, you know, parents work, but I think it, it's what we're seeing is it's mostly moms that have this sort of enmeshment, which I think is normal, especially in this generation of moms and daughters. There's this certain level of enmeshment, and it is painful to separate <laughs> from your daughter's outcomes. And it's like that old saying about, you know, if, if you love something, set it free. Because as long, if you're locked into this, that's another motivating factor here is the energy. If I, am, if I am clinging to this certain outcome, I keep her locked in too. Like now we're locked in battle. You know what I mean? And I have to let go so she can let go, <laughs> right? So yeah, there's lots of different angles I think that you can find inspiring to do the work, but you know, what I've found is, well, at, in the beginning was a lot of self-talk. I have reached that place of detachment. That was the other thing I wanted to lift up with those, those sort of tragedies is life is life's full of pain. And I just think it's time that we reclaim the human story of resilience. And my daughter is going to have pain in her life. My son is going to have pain in his life. It is been the pain in my life that 
has offered me opportunities to grow and become the person that I am. It's This is how humans grow. We grow through um, pain and obstacles. It's, it's how we figure out what we're made of. So my kids still have that in front of them. You know, my daughter, I can look at my own young adulthood and think, oh yeah, my kids got some pain. That's part of growing up. That's part of, of learning how to be an adult in the world is dealing with these difficulties that life is going to hand you. Yeah, this is a weird one, <laughs> you know, for sure. Does it have to be a crisis? That's the, that's the meaning. Like we get, to, we get to decide that. You know, Viktor Frankl is, is known for saying suffering stops being suffering the minute it takes on meaning. So can you change the meaning of the story so you can have a different experience? That was a lot. That's very well said. You know, as you're talking about the richness of life, I was just reflecting on the past year. I'm not sure when this episode will come out, but we're recording it in January of 2023. And I'm thinking about the year before. 2022 was a crazy year for me. And it was just all the good and all the bad at once. Maybe not all, but it was like rapid fire, you know, like the stress of being attacked by the trans rights activists, going on vacation, discovering I love boogie boarding, then getting ill with COVID and never being the same, developing long COVID in pots, um, coming under attack for my license, but then coming out of that victorious, sharing the story with Helen Joyce and that episode being the most popular episode of my podcast and opening doors for me and connections with other people and, you know, inspiring other people. And my, you know, the house that I moved out of getting robbed while it was on the market, burglarized, right? And waiting 10 hours for the police to show up. But then it turns out that the fact that it was burglarized and how that changed my plan for how to sell it, I ended up selling it for more money and faster than it seems like I would have if it hadn't been burglarized and if I'd stuck to my original plan for how to sell it. So, you know, you just never know. And even yesterday was such a rich day for me because, um, I my day started off with attending the memorial of the woman who was my lawyer for my Mm -hmm. case, um, you know, fighting the allegations last year, she, she passed away recently and, you know, I attended her memorial yesterday and, Got to mm-hmm. meet her wife, Candace Jackson, mm-hmm. who oh, I've been yes. wanting to meet. Um, you know, a wonderful person. And then mm-hmm. seeing a rainbow on my way to my next location. And and um there's this cool optical illusion where the way that the mist was reflecting off of the asphalt, it felt like the rainbow was coming down right onto the street right next to me, chasing me and following me. And then, you know, that same afternoon having a a blessing and I I won't name drop, but let me just say someone very important to me who I admire tremendously and who the producers of Affirmation Generation admire tremendously agreed to watch a preview of the film. And I got to send Mm. that email and felt so good about it. Like all of that happened in one day and that's the richness of life. And you, you never know when something is happening, what the outcome of that will be. Like, for example, the house getting burglarized meant I walked away with more money, right? Like, and I think about how worried my own mother was during my incredibly troubled adolescence. And, Me too. Mm-hmm. And um, there's there are parts of that story that I still haven't shared on my podcast, but um, 
but they made me who I am today as trite as that sounds, you know, (laughs) and, um, and who among us is the same at 30 as they were at 17, right? right. We change so much during those years. And of course, that's a reason that we should be cautionary about these young people and protect them from making lifelong decisions. But I think it's also easy for those of us on the side of concern. It's, it's easy for us to forget that, um, you know, just how much these kids are going to grow. And we hope that that growth comes with the least amount of harm possible. But, you know, for some parents, you know, your kids will go through medicalization, right? And if they end up detransitioned and depressed, well, the silver lining is that they will be very wise because all the detransitioners I've met are pretty fascinating people yes. with a really unique perspective on life. And and you yes. can't know as a parent whether that's the journey that your kid has in store for them in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I often say, you know, this can break your heart to pieces or it can break your heart open. And then life is rich. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Something else that this brought to me that I didn't have before is faith. I would not have said I was a faithful person before this. And that's part of the Zen, I think, is just faith that things will be. (laughs) You know, I can't say that things will all turn out. I don't know what that means. But but that your story demonstrated, you know, we just never know where these things are going to lead us. And if we are moving through life open-hearted, we will recognize when they led to something beautiful or magical, you know, instead of being mired in our victimhood. Um, And when we talk about those kids that are going to go on to medicalize, I think it's so important that we, we think about that story and make sure that they know There's life on the other side. Whatever tragedy befalls your life, there is life after tragedy. And we have to be really careful with that story and the story that we're telling our kids about medicalization. Because if we tell them they're going to ruin their life and if they medicalize, you know, then what are they stuck with if they regret that? I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. This piece you mentioned of faith is, I agree, so important. And during some of life's most challenging moments, the only alternative to taking leaps of faith is trying and probably failing to control everything. That's right. Yes. And when I think about the parents I've worked with who found themselves in desperate situations, the attempt to control everything, it's like, part of what makes that so hazardous is that it very well could be that in 
in your very efforts to control the outcome, you end up doing the thing that pushes your kid away or that, you know, causes them to double down. And taking a blind leap of faith and finding God, if you will, if that's your path, it doesn't have to be something that you use that terminology for, but finding whatever it is that you're meant to find in the situation in your heart and trusting in that could be the very thing, you know, it's, it could be that letting go of the attempt to control the situation that allows more resilience to come forward. Like earlier you were talking about clinging too tightly, right? Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and you're saying that if you're stuck in that place of rigidity and control, then you're kind of keeping your kid locked there. Mm-hmm. And these kids, we have to remember they're they're impressionable and they're very sensitive to the impressions that people near to them hold them, right? And if mm-hmm. you as a parent are clinging tightly to this narrative of how troubled your child is, then maybe you're keeping them locked in that. So that act of faith and letting go and like you were saying, like believing in the best parts of your kid and knowing that they're on their own journey that very way that very well may be the thing that actually sets your kid free yeah i went through a period of time of knowing that and still being attached you know i i was doing the work of letting go but i wasn't there yet <laughs> easier said than done it's, it's so easy for much, me to say yes. i don't have an rogd kid <laughs> to be fair yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a piece. Well, there was an interview with Jesse Manisto where she actually interviewed me on my podcast, and it was called Perceiving a Higher Path. And, you know, there's a little bit more of my story there, but we talk about how it had to be for realsies, right? Like, it doesn't work until it's for realsies. And so the Zen, I think you speak of, is that as well. But it it was work to get there, for sure. The letting go is... Um, I. I, oh, I wanted to, to say that earlier, that this, this is not a normal level of individuation that I am inviting parents to work toward, right? And I, and I wanted to let your listeners know that I'm well aware of that, you know, that there is that mama bear. There is that biological drive to protect your child, yes. And then deeper down, <laughs> I think there's that, connectedness like that's what my faith is in is in this that that we're all connected you know that that our our metaphors matter and you know I've got cells in my body and they're individual cells and I I see the world as just a larger system right like my body is a system we are cells in the system of the world you know we're part of a larger system we are connected and we're all just doing the best we can with what we know of the world and our current skill set, everybody is just doing the best they can to get their needs met. And if we can move through the world with curiosity and compassion and stay in the moment as much as possible, then my faith is in just the order of things. You know, I have a lot of faith in life itself. And I have faith in the human capacity for resilience. And my kid's a human. And so am I. And so are you. <laughs> right? So, you know, if you own that story, that you you have what it takes. You have what it takes to have a different experience. 
Well said. Well, that's, that's beautiful. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, there was a question for you on Twitter last time I checked, but I think you answered it really, which is uh, someone asked, I'd like to know how she's doing with her daughter and more pointers on staying focused on staying positive. Also, how can she stay true to herself without pissing off her child? And when I see that last part, it's like, well, you can't control that, can you? <laughs> we were just talking about letting go of control. I would say, though, adopting that language of worldviews, <clears throat> and this came from a conversation uh, that Lisa Marciano did with Patrick Ryan. It used to be part of her Patreon content for families in this situation, but she's released that, and you can find the link on my Substack in a few of my pieces, um, one of them being Sacrifice, which is maybe the most recent one that I've linked it in, where I also talk about this, this painful process of of letting go, right? But uh, Patrick Ryan is an expert in communicating with people who have um, joined groups, is what he would say. I think he's often referred to as a cult expert, but he doesn't like to use that word he, because nobody joins a cult, right? They'll mm-hmm. join groups to, to get their needs met, and they will stay with the group as long as that group is meeting their needs. So... Um, he just really encourages neutrality. And so that was something I was working really hard to truly feel, right? To truly feel neutral. And I can't say that I've gotten there. You know, I definitely still feel like um, it is a healthier pathway to not medicalize and to take responsibility for your experience in the world. And I still hope that my daughter chooses that (laughs) at some point. But what I do do with her is use this language of worldviews. I will lift up, you know, you and I have different worldviews right now and that's okay. You know, you have a different idea of what that word means than I do. That's okay. But I need to, you know, use language is important to me. It's meaningful and, and I value it. And I'm going to use language, you know, in the way that is in my worldview. And that model is healthy so- differentiation. And, and, and reminds her that there's a choice, you know, that this mm-hmm. is a worldview. And when it stops mm-hmm. working for her, here's another one, I think. So, so uh, let's remind people where they can find you. So the Stoic Mom Project, both your, your writing and your podcast content, both free and paid, that's all located at stoicmom.substack.com. You also said you're working on a forum. Yes. So I do offer one-on-one coaching. And as you highlighted it, it is typically full, but I'm always working to um, get moms back to that grounded place where they feel confident and feel like they don't need me. So there are always spaces opening up. So if, if somebody is interested in that, I would encourage them to fill out my discovery form, which can also be found on the Substack. stack. Um, and then, yes, I Right now, the community that I offer is accessed by purchasing the highest um, subscription tier at Substack, which is founding member. And I will probably be changing that. And that that community gives you access to a private online forum and then a group that meets monthly right now. And it also gives you priority on my coaching wait list. And... Uh, members of that group also get to submit questions uh, for my guest Q and A's on my podcast. So yeah. those are really wonderful resources. I know many people will benefit. So I'm happy to promote your work and make sure my audience knows that 
you're available. Um, and they can follow you on Twitter. I believe it's at Stoic Mom of ROGD. It is. I truly am not on there very much. Okay. <laughs> I used to spend a lot more time on there, and I just uh, you're taking care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a healthy place for me. Sometimes I'll dip my toes in a little bit and see what's happening, but I, I'm not on there a whole lot. They can reach. I have had people reach out to me and message me on Twitter, um, but I would encourage the Substack if they really want to get to know my work. You know. I think actually, uh, since you just mentioned staying off of Twitter, I'd, I'd love to close out by sharing uh, unexpected self-care things, may- maybe some favorite things you've discovered. I'll mention a couple of mine. As I mentioned earlier, I discovered well into my 30s that I love boogie boarding. Too bad I didn't discover that when I actually lived near warm beaches. <laughs> other chapters of my life. Now I live in Oregon. Um, and, uh, float tanks are also one of my favorite things. Oh, I've not tried one. (laughs) Oh, float tanks are great. Interesting. They, uh, yeah, let me just, if, see, if, if there was such a thing as affiliate marketing for float tanks, I would totally do it, (laughs) but you know, you have to find your local float tank center and I don't have a promo code at your local float tank center, but no, doing float tanks, it's such good therapy. It's, you know, you're suspended weightlessly and in the darkness. So it's a total reset for your nervous system, takes all the pressure off of your joints. Plus what's making you buoyant is a ton of Epsom salt. So you get that Mm. nice deep soothing effect from the magnesium absorbing into your, your muscles and nerves. And it's just such a good reset. It's really helped with my mood and chronic pain and my, my neurological disorder POTS that I've had since I got COVID. So yes, I love float tanks. I can't say good enough things about them. Um, do you have any uh, favorite, perhaps unexpected uh, self-care tools that you use or hobbies you've discovered? Some of them are probably pretty expected. I do take Epsom salt baths <laughs> quite frequently. Um, Solvator ambulando, which means it is solved through walking. I don't know the origin of that. I know it's ancient and I know that walking is magical. Yeah. Um, I love walking. And I have recently taken up dream interpretation, which I have to say was also a huge contributing factor to the Zen. (laughs) Because my, my subconscious or that connectedness, whatever it is that we are, you know, tuned into if we're listening, likes to tell me to just chill. Everything's gonna be okay. And you can find some of that dream interpretation on my Substack too. That is part of the paid content. But I have had oh, that's lovely. plenty of dreams saying, you know what? Your kids got this. Just relax. So Beautiful. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And I know you. we have a lot of worried parents in our audience who will be very glad to hear from you. And I hope they derive some relief and clarity from this conversation. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Some Therapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, 
you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.